Welcome to Ikigai Stories. I'm Sam Yushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. It's hard to capture Gary Hallett's title in a single statement. Learning advisor, retired school psychologist, Vietnam War veteran, early champion of positive psychology, global citizen. I simply refer to him as Yoda. At 73 years old, Gary has an incredible combination of wisdom, education, and experience matched with a hunger for knowledge and a passion for learning. Our conversation kicks off with a discussion about biocultural evolutionary perspective, providing context on Gary's personal story that he describes as a story about war, but not a war story. Gary grew up in small town, Illinois. As a young man, Gary and a childhood friend got drafted into the Vietnam War. While stationed in different locations, they kept in contact by writing letters, including conversations about what they wanted to do once they got out of the military. Both friends had landed on the same conclusion. When they got home, they wanted to become educators. Tragically, Gary's friend was killed midway through the tour. Gary followed through on his commitment and eventually became a school psychologist, often working with children dealing with trauma. The cornerstone of his career focused on developmental psychology and learning abilities across a span of life from birth to death. And this cross-section of developmental learning and his personal trauma anchored his engagement as a participant observer, eventually leading his interest into the field of positive psychology. Gary's personal growth and development led him to question his professional work and the industrial nature of education that's heavily oriented toward a deficit model of what's wrong with students. He took a stand against assessments that were geared toward measuring intelligence and instead directed his energy toward growing intelligence. This stand carried risks, especially as a father with a young family, but he anchored his perspective on two key points. Number one, neurologically at birth, we're all different. And number two, throughout life, we develop at different rates. He captures a combination of these two fact-based insights by saying, quote, it's not the child's fault that we went with an industrial model that develops people based on chronological age rather than developmental age. And Gary contends that that varied pace of development continues throughout life. If we have the capacity to continuously learn and develop from womb to tomb, then what can we do as a society to support that ongoing development rather than simply diagnose someone out of laziness and convenience? The universe would provide an opportunity to test his personal development when his daughter's middle school paper on Vietnam led her to ask about his experience in the war. And Gary responded by giving her a book authored by a Vietnamese-American friend which eventually inspired his daughter's interest in visiting Vietnam to help children. Gary had never considered going back to Vietnam and found himself wondering, now what have I done? He offered to go to Vietnam first and prepared himself for the emotional experience. The trip would turn out to be transformational and lead him on a journey of healing and self-discovery that included participating in the launch of an international school in Vietnam and serving as an advisor and mentor to Vietnamese educators and professionals. And since that trip over 15 years ago, Gary says that he has decided to, quote, 
Let the Universe Slap Me Around, and frequently travels to Vietnam learning about psychology, sociology, education, and of course, personal development by immersing himself in a foreign land that forces him to learn through the lens of others while continuing his participant-observer journey of excellence. Gary closes with an insightful message, saying that one's willingness to examine their emotional, social, and cognitive life is a key to personal growth. And he notes that once he let go of believing that he knew something, his learning improved substantially. As a reminder, please remember to subscribe and rate the Ikigai Story podcast. And now, enjoy this episode with Gary Howlett, the official Yoda of Ikigai Stories. Gary, thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure. It's, my uh, pleasure, I'm Sam. I'm really excited for, for uh, this conversation. Uh, and what I'd like to start off with, so I'm going to check my notes. I'm going to cheat here. I'd like to start off talking about biocultural evolutionary perspective. Well, I'll tell you, you know, and I, as, as I've mentioned to you many times, I've always uh, so appreciated our conversations. And uh, uh, I've not tried this uh, particular thing, but I'm going to try to uh, have it be conversational. And that's what I just mentioned about without completely geeking out. Uh, I took the term biocultural evolutionary perspective from uh, Dr. Howard Gardner, uh, who is uh, uh, at Harvard, actually just about uh, to retire. But he's had a big influence on my thinking about developmental psychology and about the whole notion of uh, how skills, abilities, uh, talents uh, develop. He is the uh, founder of the uh, theory of multiple intelligences. And it came out of his work uh, in the veterans' hospitals, uh, I believe in Boston, where he worked with brain-injured veterans, and then also uh, working with children that had uh, unusually uh, unusually, uh, developing talents. Uh, We used to call them savants. Uh, Well, actually, we used to call them idiot savants, which is kind of Mm -hmm. a negative connotation. But if you look at a child that has just maybe developed an inordinately uh, well-developed set of math skills that just doesn't seem to have come from uh, traditional education or or whatever else. So Gardner came up with uh, the the whole notion of the multiple nature of intelligence. And uh, also that they do not necessarily, uh, the intelligences don't necessarily develop uniformly. Hmm. So uh, quickly, the, the seven intelligences that he originally came up with was uh, verbal linguistic, logical, mathematical. And his argument is that that's basically what we honor in traditional schools. But he said going in and looking at the physical structures of the brains and then looking at the way that uh, they have developed, there's also a spatial intelligence, there's musical intelligence, 
There's uh, the, the whole notion of kinesthetic or, or bodily mm -hmm. uh, intelligences, intrapersonal, which just means you know within, and interpersonal, which means you know between others. Yeah. And then he uh, he added a couple uh, that met his criteria for his theory uh, later on. One being uh, the naturalists, uh, naturalist uh, intelligence, uh, as well as he 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 speaks. Uh, to uh, some some notion of uh, of our spiritual sense or whatever else, he's not delved into that particularly deeply because you cannot quantify that. Mm -hmm. And he's he is a developmental psychologist and a uh, well and a brainiac. Yeah. I mean, he's a MacArthur Grant uh, reward uh, recipient or whatever else. So with with that as kind of a, a backset or, or or as a backdrop, that's where he began to look at the, the, the whole notion of the human uh, uh, species from the biological, uh, from the cultural, which he says you really can't separate out how a person's biology develops without looking at the cultural uh, uh, underpinnings and overlays, mm -hmm. as well as uh, the relatively new uh, or uh, emerging field of evolutionary psychology, mm -hmm. which uh, it, it tries to be uh, uh, clear about how humans have evolved over uh, over the eons. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now this it's uh, it's probably important to set some context on on your background yeah. in psychology and your work um, as a school psychologist or a school counselor. So, can you kind of describe? Well, that's that's <clears throat> in in thinking or preparing for coming in uh, mm -hmm. for this conversation, Sam. I thought. Especially the last few years, I've been spending, as I mature gracefully, <laughs> I've been spending more time looking at that, about you know how my own uh, personal uh, path has evolved or whatever else. And it's kind of centered on what, I've, what I came up with, the whole notion of it's, uh, it's about a war, but it's not a war story. Mm. And it's, it's, it speaks to... Uh, uh, my having uh, participated in the Vietnam War as a, as a young man, and uh, uh, while I was while I was there, I had a very dear friend, and we were he was in Vietnam at the same time, but we were in different locations, and we wrote back and forth uh, pretty regularly about what we wanted to do after uh, we got out of the uh, the military, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and prior to going. To Vietnam, I was a combat soldier, but prior to uh, going to Vietnam, I had been stationed at Fort Ord, California, and uh, part of my assignment there was I was a platoon leader, infantry platoon leader in a training unit, but I also uh, did some teaching. I taught uh, signal communication, uh, landmine warfare, <laughs> all the things you're going to need when you become a civilian. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and... Uh, so this, my friend Larry, who was in Vietnam, we're writing back, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe that I might like to be a, a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so he, he wrote back, and he said, you know, it's funny because I was thinking kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had both uh, been at Illinois State University, 
And I did so well that that's how I ended up being drafted. <laughs> and he was there, too. And so we thought maybe when we got out of the military that, uh, that we would go back to Illinois State and we'd, be, we'd become teachers. Mm. Well, then as, as, the, as my experience there progressed, uh, about midway through my tour, he was killed. And it, uh, we were from a small town uh, central Illinois, mm-hmm. and he was one of the uh, very first of uh, the soldiers to ha- have been killed from from my hometown. Mm-hmm. So it had a impact on uh, on that area, very conservative area. Mm-hmm. It had an impact, and that was also when uh, a lot of young people and a lot of older people were beginning <clears throat> were beginning to uh, question the, the our war efforts, mm-hmm. especially from a moral and an ethical standpoint. So I, I uh, came home and, and, did, and did go back to school and got very, very interested in uh, psychology, uh, the whole notion of how to enhance people's learning or whatever else. But it was also in, in the, the, the deep, dark recesses of my mind it was still uh, uh, there about the impact that war has on uh, specifically women and children and old people. Mm. So not so much you know the battles or, or what had happened to me, uh, what was done to me, as much as what we did to others. Mm. And then much much later in my career as a school psychologist, I got more and more interested in uh, children that had been uh, uh, traumatized or that children that <coughs> through, no, uh, through no fault of their own uh, did not win the birth lottery. Mm. You know, they were born into circumstances not of their choosing uh, and the impact that that has on uh, humans developmentally. And then that's, as I've mentioned to you before, that's when I began to look at the whole notion of the developmental uh, psychology, but also our developmental learning uh, abilities, literally from birth uh, to death, or what we call, you know, womb to tomb. Mm -hmm. And that has kind of been the cornerstone, I would say, of my career. Well, then kind of fast forward, so I'm, I'm interested in this. At the same time, I'm also dealing uh, with my particular trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it became almost a, a participant observer, mm-hmm. which is a sociological way to kind of look at, uh, at uh, 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 anything of your a particular interest. So you don't try to separate yourself from your client from your uh, patient, uh, from your student. It's more this journey uh, of, uh, of mutually uh, designed and beneficial learning. Mm. And I, I began to uh, question uh, school psychology, uh, not, as a, not as a profession, but I began to make you know, pretty good money uh, giving tests and doing evaluations on children and young people uh, that objectified their deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Well, again, we're not far enough down the road 
to know exactly uh, what these deficiencies, or the origin of these deficiencies. Are they, are they rooted in literal uh, uh, damage in the, the, the brain, or is it uh, abnormal growth or whatever else? We're still not. Sure, Sam, and yeah. there's about as many theories as you can. Uh, yeah. you, you pay your money, you, 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 get, you get your choice. Yeah. But then in the, uh, probably in the uh, late 90s, I ran into the work of a Dart, uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, mm -hmm. who was and is still at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And he is probably about my age. Mm -hmm. So early in his career, he uh, did a study uh, on uh, learned helplessness. And it's literally a study that I don't believe could be done uh, today uh, ethically. But he, had, uh, put, he would put a dog in a situation where it would receive electrical shocks. And then he, uh, he would, uh, in one of the situations the dog was not able to avoid the shock and in the other situation the dog could be conditioned to learn how to turn the uh, the electrical current off mm -hmm. and he began to notice that the dog that was unable to uh, to do anything about the uh, the the shock uh, fell into learned helplessness right. and that the other dog uh, who was able to uh, uh, turn off the shock and was able to control some of the, uh, the, his suffering uh, seemed to be uh, able to uh, na navigate his or her life better or was, was stronger. So that kind of set Sligman off on the path of wondering that if a person could, if you could, if you could put a person in a circumstance where you learned to be helpless, could you learn to be optimistic? Mm -hmm. And literally, I believe one of his first uh, books for the general public was, was called Learned Optimism, mm -hmm. which was kind of a how-to book. And um, I, I, uh, I don't find his writing style particularly compelling. Mm -hmm. And even the, the strategies that were in that book, I found uh, a little on the simplistic side. But Seligman is, is considered to be the, the, the grandfather or one of two or three grandfathers of again the relatively new field of positive psychology mm -hmm. which has gotten <coughs> a lot of press uh some good not so not some not so good yeah. i mean some people have kind of trivialized it into you know the quest for happiness or, or whatever else which was never his intent and is really not uh the field uh but seligman uh became the president of the american psychological association in 1999 and that's kind of the grand poobah of, you know, of, of psychologists. Right. And then that's during that, that uh, period or, or with that platform is when he began to announce the, 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 the field. And that struck a chord with me that resonates to this very day where it, looked, it, looks, it looks at things that are not necessarily new in the field of psychology, psychiatry, or philosophy, but it, it was uh, the, his was some of the first efforts to put good science underneath the philosophies, the strategies, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. And that that's the piece that that I've tried to uh, 
to uh, dive deep on is that not uh, not that there's anything wrong with uh, you know the popular press or 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 uh, looking at it, but to try to differentiate positive psychology, looking at it developmentally. Mm-hmm. At what age uh, does uh, empathy come on with a young child, for instance, or compassion? Uh, and then when is that? Uh, uh, when does that appear to peak or whatever else? And the thing that uh, I found uh, compelling as well with Seligman is he said, if you look at, if you just put together a, a continuum of negative 10 to zero, and then zero to plus 10, he said, what we're, what we're saying is that there's nothing wrong with a deficit model, with a medical model of negative 10 to zero. But over the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's just out of balance. Right. And, right. and now most people are not interested in just going from their deficits to a norm or to back to a zero. We're interested in how is it that we can help people, <coughs> excuse me, of all ages and stages to move from zero to a plus 10. Right, right. Well, I wasn't seeing anybody looking at that particular set of questions developmentally. So that's where I thought I could, I could maybe uh, uh, look at as far as a niche for myself, uh, my, uh, my, my work. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I began to run across some of the work uh, of the Eastern traditions. And my, my, my time in Vietnam, I had become fascinated with, uh, with uh, Buddhists, the physical beings. I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about Buddhism mm-hmm. or the philosophies, yeah. but I, I just thought they were cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we'd see them a lot, you know, in the pagodas or walking around. And, you know, at, at the same time that I'm in almost daily combat, these guys are around, and they have a, a, a sense of calmness or whatever else that I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll have me some of that. <laughs> and, but I had, no, I had no understanding of that particularly until many, many years later. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just as a little side note, while in Vietnam, I was uh, wounded and sent to a uh, hospital, uh, Camp, Camp Zama, which is in Japan, and uh, it, it's, uh, it was an old uh, uh, Japanese hospital that had been, now it was, it was literally a base for uh, the wounded uh, soldiers, American soldiers from Vietnam. And the physical beauty of the place, and the, uh, the literally, I was there, I w- arrived there in the spring, and the uh, the, I just remember the cherry blossoms. Mm-hmm. And then I remember I was in the hospital for quite a long time. <clears throat> and after I got out, how we would just walk the grounds. And the same thing. I had no understanding of the Japanese culture. But I began to uh, uh, investigate or at least observe their families. And uh, got to go to some of the some of the famous temples around Tokyo, whatever else, and that again had a very profound impact on my life. Okay, then jumping back to the positive psychology piece, I found that to be a a, a nice 
uh, marriage of some of the Eastern philosophies and traditions and some of the Western psychology sciences that were emerging uh, out of uh, uh, positive psychology. Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, uh, heroes is a, a man named Buckminster Fuller. And he was, he was uh, a uh, genius, but he, he was a, a kind of a contrarian or whatever else. And uh, he, was, he would come up with all these inventions, and he considered himself an engineer. But because he had never gone to school, they wouldn't allow him to publish in the engineering journals. Mm. So he would just, uh, he would just uh, uh, patent them. And he's doing, if you, th if you know the geodesic dome, yeah, so that's a, yeah. a Bucky okay. invention, whatever else. Well, he has this saying where he said that uh, whenever he encourages or whenever he encounters new learning, uh, it has the smell of metaphysical mustiness. <laughs> <laughs> and what I take that to mean is that there's really nothing new under the sun. Yeah. So it's not like positive psychology is discovering new uh, stuff. But back to Fuller, he says we're swimming in all of the uh, answers and all of the things uh, that, that have uh, evolved over time. And it's, it's, it's the uh, human mind that can kind of synthesize uh, these things through observation, through good science, uh, and, and whatever else, and bring those things forth. Mm. And he mm. was one of the very, very early uh, environmentalists and one of the very, very first, what I would consider uh, systems thinkers. And he also was uh, the very first to look at well, what he called uh, comprehensive anticipatory design science. And that's, a, that's literally a field of, of study that, that he mm. is, is, it's still around, mm. it's still around. There's a Buckminster Fuller Institute that is still around. But I began to look at that as far as uh, children. Yeah. Is the, the thing that I was not seeing in the literature or in my, uh, I've only ever been a practitioner in my uh, skill set, to how is it that you can help children to uh, anticipate? Well, then looking at the futurist, uh, they, they have a term called a future focused role image which literally, one of the skills that humans have is that we can literally go inside, go internal, and image uh, ourselves into the future. Hmm. We can literally image ourselves in the past. And uh, those of us that have been on the planet for, let's just say, a substantial amount of time, <laughs> we can hear a song, uh, I can hear a song that I, I uh, uh, heard first in the 60s or the 70s, yeah. and it not only takes me back to when I first heard that, it takes me back to the emotional uh, piece that I had at that particular time. Mm. And I thought, that seems not only interesting, but powerful. Yeah. So if we can help children, humans, lifelong, to go back and reimagine and then image uh, uh, where, where they are now, and then also bring that forth, that that seems to be uh, a, a powerful, at least, framework. Yeah. 
And yeah. also, that, that it's something that uh, that all humans appear to be able to, uh, to do. Yeah. Regardless of culture, uh, the 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 things that the biologists have brought forth to me is that <clears throat> that that you go across the planet, and there does not seem to be any one particular culture, uh, one particular uh, uh, type of human or whatever else that has the uh, corner uh, that has cornered intelligence or creativity or whatever else. So, so that intelligence and creativity and innovation, that seems to be equitably distributed throughout the entire planet. Mm. What appears to be objectifiable is the, uh, the, uh, the uh, possibility for advantaging or opportunity is radically uh, diverse across the planet and radically unequal. Mm. So then if you, if you take that back to, again, individual work w with a child. So if a, if a child uh, comes uh, to me uh, as, a, as a school psychologist, as a special educator, uh, as a teacher in general, and I already know what they need before I've met them, before I have any understanding about their background, I have any understanding about their 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 uh, their their culture. I have any understanding about that. That seems off to me now. Hmm. Now again, I, I can have my framework, yeah. and I only know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know. But it seems to me like if I have a more expansive uh, worldview of human potential, that that can do uh, more good. Yeah. And if I have a limited where if I give an assessment and I only see the child through their deficiencies, first of all, it's not true. And second of all, it doesn't look at what, they, uh, what their strengths are. Mm -hmm. So the whole strengths-based piece is, is kind of been a, a derivative uh, of positive psychology, but also the business world. Mm -hmm. Uh, with with the work of Drikers and the work of uh, a lot of people uh, like that, mm -hmm. and the Japanese, mm -hmm. you know, with their whole notion of the loose, tight uh, leadership, mm -hmm. which I don't know is is uh, as new as 500 years or so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that there was there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of synergy around uh, that that whole thing, that I tried to root with uh, looking at children especially from a simplified starting point, focusing clearly, objectively, and deeply at what they can do rather than what they can't do. Yeah, so, so when, um, when Seligman's work started, there, that whole movement really came to the forefront in 99. Um, in advance of that, it sounds like you had this inner turmoil, or you, you see, there was it was a, a deficit model. Yes. Um, did you did you have tools that you were using, or was there a philosophy, or was it just kind of like something inside, and then finally that was that was reinforced by not a student body left, but an evolution of the psychology industry of. Uh, in 99. So can you just kind of unpack that a little I, bit, like what that I, was like in I, your work as a school psychologist? I can, I can say 
that, well, first of all, I think that's a, an excellent and profound question. And in my attempts to unpack, I'm going to say all the above, Sam, <laughs> to what you said. I knew, I knew that what I was doing as far as the assessment piece did not square with my own internal path mm-hmm. about how I came through school and how I left school uh, thinking that I was deficient, uh, thinking that I was not particularly bright, and, and, uh, and whatever else. And, and it also seemed the, the, the science behind that in, in school psychology is heavily oriented, I mean, well, not heavily, I mean, it's, it's rooted in statistics. Well, the more I studied the statistics mm-hmm. of intelligence tests, of uh, tests of creativity, the tests of, of whatever else, well, they're all, they're all based uh, in, in some regards on the bell curve. Well, I think what it's easy to forget is the bell curve is a theory. <laughs> it, 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 is, it, is, it is something that's superimposed over reality. It is not necessarily reality. Mm. And then with intelligence testing specifically, the, 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 uh, the stereotypic bias and the, uh, the uh, racial bias and whatever else of intelligence testing dates back to, to its, its origins when it was uh, very first used to, uh, uh, to induct soldiers. If you mm-hmm. didn't do well in a, uh, an intelligence test, you went in the infantry. If you did well in an intelligence test, you went into mm-hmm. leadership or whatever else. And also intelligence screening tests were used for uh, refugees and uh, uh, immigrants as a way to classify and what I would say uh, racially uh, stereotype. Hmm. So, so we certainly by certainly by the 50s, before I even started my uh, formal training in the 60s and the 70s, most of the scientists that I now respect knew better. Hmm. And that's why there was a big split uh, where the humanist uh, psychologists went off and began to look at human potentials that blossomed in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, to their uh, credit, they began to ask better questions. To their uh, the deficit side of, of, of that movement was they, tried, they didn't try at all to put any science underneath yeah. it. Yeah. Thus, the... Uh, the the books uh, like uh, uh, Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search mm-hmm. for Meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a trained psychiatrist uh, before he went into the concentration camps, so he had he had some ability to observe, you know, his his inner life as well as what he observed. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 that's that's not like a hard science. Well, yeah. in psychology, it's not a hard science. But he had some ability uh, to what later was termed, well, what I call participant observation. Mm-hmm. So he was participating yeah. in that. But he had the advantage of his background. Yeah. Well, a quick post-it note, that's very important in the new, relatively new field of resilience research. Mm. 
So, so as, 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 as we back that out and we look at the, uh, the humanists of uh, the Carl Rogers, which is he's famous for the concept of unconditional positive regard. And he's, he's uh, very famous for, a, I mean, literally a whole new field of study, which looks much more at uh, uh, the, the whole, hmm. you know, the body language and the mm-hmm. language that the person is using or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of you kind of put those together, and that's what I found in the field of psychology, just that our uh, techniques that are uh, statistically based are uh, left wanting. Yeah. So then to try to put together the, the quantifiable, let's say like uh, IQ, mm-hmm. along with the, the qualitative, mm-hmm. has been probably my my overarching. Uh, Passion, I'll say. Yeah. Literally, probably since uh, the, the mid '80s or so. So I had an intuitive sense, Sam, but I, there wasn't anything I could that I, I could I could uh, that I could wasn't tangible. It just wasn't tangible enough yeah. for me to even articulate. Yeah. When did it become tangible? I mean, was you know, it that, I finally that couldn't. St- I finally couldn't stand it. I, I finally, I finally decided if I was going to stay in the field that I was going to give up the assessment piece. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, and again, I'm working for a living. Mm-hmm. So my supervisors or whatever else, they're saying, your role <laughs> is to give intelligence <laughs> tests and achievement tests. And I said, our role, if we're going to assess intelligence and then, and then not try to grow intelligence, that seems to be a moral dilemma. Hmm. If I'm just going to assess it and then I say it's fixed, the science is not supporting that as much as when uh, I, I was even in graduate school. I got out of graduate school in 74. Hmm. That's about the time that Howard Gardner with his multiple intelligences, uh, not long after that, there was a, a man named Goldman that came out with the, the concept of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a, a woman uh, in, uh, in Canada, Mary Gordon, who came out with a program called uh, The Roots of Empathy mm-hmm. that began to look at, uh, we began to look at all of it. Mm-hmm. Can intelligence be grown? My answer is yes. Okay, Howlett, smart guy, how do you grow intelligence? Now I get a little, <laughs> now, now I get a little less clear, yeah. except looking at the early years, uh, you know, specifically zero to five, we now know so much more, so much more about how to help you know a child, you know to develop cognitively and emotionally, than than when I uh, when I first started. And although it seems like a long time ago to me, as far as the actual field or the evolution in the field, it's not been that long. Mm-hmm. I'd say within the last 40 years, is is when we, the science around. The, the how to help the, the, the biology, uh, the, the biological and neurological parts of uh, intelligence to uh, develop uh, more uh, with, with more breath in, in young children. Oh, okay. For, yeah, the, for yeah. zero to five. Yeah, the, the, the zero, I'm sorry, the yeah. zero to five. Yeah. yeah. Then that's, Sam, when I came up with the whole notion of the, the seven-year increments. Yeah, yeah. So say like I'm working with you, I'm, gonna, I'm now going to make you 10 years old. Mm. So you and I are doing some uh, 
some work. Well, I've, I've, I've locked away my test kits. Mm-hmm. So now it's just you and me. Mm-hmm. So I, again, it's, it's more my observations. It's more my learning about your family. Mm-hmm. It's more learning about my, uh, uh, your background. Mm-hmm. So it's school psychology almost as a quasi-social work approach. Mm-hmm. And those, those fields have been kept fairly distinct. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So looking at that, well, then we start out very similar to, to, to this podcast. It mm-hmm. starts out more as a conversation. Well, then I, get, I gift the child, literally on a piece of paper. Uh, I'll draw zero to 100. So I'll gift the child. I'll say, okay, with a little bit of luck, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, with uh, and, and, uh, uh, good nutrition and, and uh, good health care, we're going to give you 100 years on the planet. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to whack that up into seven-year hunks. So seven years old, 14 years old, 21 years old, 28 years old, 35 years old, 42 years old. Well, say like, say like I'm going to put you back at the 10 years old. So you have no real understanding of beyond 10. Mm-hmm. So then that, on that piece of paper where I mark him, at, him or her at 10, I mark myself at whatever age I was. Mm-hmm. So if today you're 10 years old, I'm going to mark myself at 73. Mm-hmm. So then I'm going to draw the arrow back to zero. And I say, okay, I've been on the planet this long. Mm-hmm. And you've been on this long. So there's, there's some things that, that I have experienced or whatever else. You just haven't experienced yet. That's just not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not your fault. But you've experienced 10 so we're going to just explore a little bit about this because mm. around the age of seven, that's the changing of the teeth. Mm. And 14, you think about, that's when we think traditionally kind of adolescence. Right. Well, and then uh, up until fairly recently, 21, we thought, well, that's it. You're an adult. You know, go out, get a job, and whatever else. Well, yeah. now we understand that the brain doesn't even finish physically developing until 25, 26, 27, mm-hmm. 28, 29. Mm-hmm. So the developmental view is just a healthier view. Now these seven-year hunks, that's looking at life chronologically. So those are not biological markers. That's just a cultural framework that we have agreed on called mm-hmm. time. <laughs> yeah. So seven years old, or we'll put you at 10 years old, then in my mind, it's important for that 10-year-old to know that 10-year-olds do not develop the same. If you put a room full of 10-year-old together, if, 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 I wouldn't say this to a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. but if I have a room full of teachers or psychologists, if there's 500 in the room, I usually start out with, I'll say, there's a couple statements I'm going to make, and if you have a disagreement with these two statements, you might as well go ahead and leave now <laughs> or, or, or check your email or, or stay in your, you will not offend me. I've already been paid. And I'll say, neurologically, at birth, we are as diverse as snowflakes. Anybody got a problem with that? Yeah. And then from birth, throughout our entire lives, we develop at different rates. Anybody in the room. So I said, so it's not the child's fault that we went with an industrial model where we would group people based on their chronological age rather than their developmental age, if that makes sense. So you put a whole group of six-year-olds together, 
and you give them a uniform curriculum, we expect them to all develop at the similar rate? I mean, nobody believes that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the same, my thinking, Sam, all the way down the pike. Now, there's, there's some science around, like, again, uh, that a, a seven-year-old around the changing of the teeth, the work of uh, Piaget and others. You know, much before seven, you pretty con or your sensory motor, and you kind of go into a concrete stage. Yeah. And then up around 10, which I, I consider kind of a sweet spot, plus or minus individual development. That's when the child can, uh, able, is able to more abstract or whatever else. So my strategies with a 10-year-old are gonna be radically different than my strategies with a seven, six, five, four, three, two-year-old, as far as what we're gonna say is that's in the era of verbiage, or even what my expectations are for them. Well, then again, based on observations and personalizing, why would that be radically different for a 28-year-old? If I've already decided that you are, should be fully developed at 28, mm -hmm. it's the same mistake that we make as thinking that you should be able to do what all the rest of the six-year-olds are, in right. my mind. Yeah. Well, then I began to go to the research, and I found out there, uh, and a lot of this was done by sociologists. There was a, 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 a professor at one of the Ivy League schools that was a sociology professor, got tired of the abstractions and the white towerness, and became a sheriff in some small mm. uh, area in, uh, in, uh, in the South, mm. and began to observe that, that uh, men, as far as criminal activity, or whatever else, they would make a lot of positive progress between the ages of, say, like 28 and 35. Mm -hmm. Well, people weren't looking at that. You know, you, you basically, if, if we knew the mm -hmm. school-to-prison pipeline, that once a kid starts into the adjudication process, the likelihood of them repeating is about 0.87. Mm -hmm. So once wow. you start wow. into uh, juvenile detention, prisons, or whatever else, the, the, the likelihood of you breaking free from that is, is uh, the, the evidence is not good. Yeah. But we have not looked much farther down the road. So what it means to me as an educator is we, we give up on people way too early. Yeah. And give up and or we classify or categorize them as a particular thing way too early. Hmm. Well, now on the field of, uh, of neurodiversity, yeah. which has really been driven more by the, the field of autism, uh, autism study, hmm. where there are people that are autistic. They're saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. I, I am not in need of being fixed. Uh, that that, uh, that you, are, you are assigning uh, my, uh, my uh, characteristics and attributes as deficiencies. I am not. Hmm. And there was, mm. there was a woman uh, named, uh, is a woman named uh, Temple Granite, and mm. she's yeah. very, very famous in yeah. the field of autism. Yeah. And one of, her, one of my favorite uh, lectures of hers, she literally, uh, large screen, puts up a, uh, a uh, uh, MRI of her brain. Hmm. And she says, okay, this is a typically developing brain. This is my brain. Changing, <laughs> fixing this, in the deficit model yeah. kind of thinking is not to my advantage. Right, right. Looking at the strengths, looking that I, I care for myself, I'm a, a PhD, 
Uh, I am a, a expert in the field of the, you know whatever she's uh, you know animal husbandry or mm-hmm. whatever else. Mm-hmm. And that's a much I, I believe the science is emerging that that's going to be the the new uh, uh, field uh, of education. Yeah. Now. If we, take, if we take that in the field of learning, we take that in the field of uh, education, and we take that in the field of business, there is a confluence. You know, business people are talking about lifelong learning, have been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses are, are, are talking about asset models as far as how you uh, look at, uh, you know, employees or, mm-hmm. or whatever else. Uh, leadership styles, you know, for many, many years have kind of looked at that. Right. So to look at that, the change, the way that business, uh, industry, uh, uh, government agencies and schools are evolving, I think that we're in, I, and I'm talking in time, for, I'm talking about in time for your children. Right. right. The, the field is evolving so quickly that it just makes me vibrate. Yeah. Because it, then again, my hunches and my intuition based on my own childhood, based on the way that, that uh, I was educated or whatever else, and then my professional, my personal side and my professional side, kind of meshing those two, and then not doing the either or trick, but saying, okay, what is it that, that we have gleaned from the past that does still have merit? And then what's emerging with, with the, the profound uh, changes that are coming in technology the whole field of personalizing education is now uh, strength and weakness. Uh, the strength is uh, the language of personalization is talking about the personal. The downside is that if I come up with a curriculum for you, mm-hmm. your tent, mm-hmm. and uh, I put it on a platform, mm-hmm. and I make it gamey, mm-hmm. I gamify it, whatever else. Uh, but I've not met you yet. And then I give that to you and say, well, it's self-paced. So you can, you can do my bidding at your leisure. Mm-hmm. That's not personalizing. Yeah. That, and, and, and that being, that being mm-hmm. said, I'm not, I'm not negating that, that there's a, a place for that. But personalizing learning is that, that I try to... Uh, enhance your uh, curiosity, your mm-hmm. creativity, uh, your background, your interests and inclinations. I try, to, I try to look at that because looking at the word personal a little, with a little more depth, once you take on your own learning and you make it personal, guess what accelerates geometrically? Your memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If you own it, if it's personal to you, if you have some personal, and, and, and I know, I know uh, uh, some of your interests, mm-hmm. but if you, if, you, if you look at that uh, from a Venn piece, and you can say, okay, what, what, where, where do the passions lie or whatever else, the acceleration of learning is, uh, is, is exponential. Yeah. More importantly, your memory around what you have learned uh, uh, is is there long enough for you to do? And this is a this is a Gardner definition, uh, Dr. Gardner's definition. But to learn something, if you learn something for my approval, uh, my rewards, my punishers, 
my grades, my, uh, my uh, allowing you into an elite uh, college or whatever else. That's basically uh, approval seeking that you, you, if you're, a good, you're a good boy mm -hmm. and, and uh, education is important to your, your family. So you uh, allow yourself to be controlled and complied but the brain in its wisdom will get rid of a lot of that before it goes to the next level, which is understanding. Now, understanding quickly is I can take, an, uh, I can take knowledge, let's say an algebraic uh, concept, and I can apply it in a new or unique situation. That's learning. Yeah. The rest is memorization and compliance uh, training, right. which there's a place for. Yeah. But, but the but future, apply it, the right? future does yeah. not appear to be rewarding those that are just into compliance. So there's, okay, so you've covered a lot of, there's a couple <laughs> questions that I have for you. One is, um, so I'd love for you to continue to expand that topic yep. with the concept of learned helplessness, right? So how, what's, can you, can you combine those two worlds? I believe, I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. Is that, is that you know, if you're looking, if you're looking at the, ex, if you're looking at the extreme, back to the dog studies, yeah, and and uh, you can kind of equate some of that uh, to uh, trauma, mm. and, and early childhood uh, trauma appears to be more detrimental than trauma later on in a person's life, mm. and so this learned helplessness, and, and I'm not, I'm not equating the two. I'm not equating uh, uh, a second yeah. grade classroom yeah. with traumatizing <laughs> children. <laughs> but, but I'm also not letting the second grade classes <laughs> off the hook. Yeah. That if, if, I, if I leave second grade with, with, a, with a mindset uh, that this is, this, is, uh, this is who I am as yeah. far as a learner, yeah. that does not allow the openness now the language of open mindset, the, the work of uh, Carol Dweek at uh, Stanford and whatever else, it's now popularizing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, there's a good reason, there's good about that and there's not good about that. Yeah. But if a child pinpoints their skills and abilities uh, as a fixed entity, right. then that, that, that goes back to the studies that literally you can do with your own children. Mm -hmm. And I did for years uh, with children uh, in, in the public schools, where if I go into, there's, the research says, this is literally from the 80s, that uh, in, in a lot of uh, situations, children by the, age of by the age of seven have decided what they can do and what they cannot do. Mm. So if you go into a second grade classroom, uh, as, as trying to set up a positive, uh, uh, experience positive psychology mm -hmm. and you literally ask you say uh, okay who's the best artist in the room uh, who's the best at math mm -hmm. who's the best at soccer kids have got it all sorted out yeah the, the problem is the kid that gets sorted out uh, in the deficiency area in in some ways you're implying okay who's the worst at soccer mm. who's the worst at art who's whatever because they've got all of that sorted out as well yeah 
the real challenge, I believe, in the whole field is that the child takes that in. Oftentimes, at a concrete level of development, right. that later on, they're literally making progress that they're not, they're not aware of. Yeah. yeah. So to be inside your own skin is not the best place to observe yourself from. Yeah. So that literally is, is a form of learned helplessness mm -hmm. it, 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 where you, uh, I'm not good at math. Right. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah. then, and then you say, okay, so and then the example I always use with children, I say, you know, when I was, I can remember when I was eight years old, and when I went to school, during the Thanksgiving holiday, every eight-year-old in every classroom across the entire United States drew a turkey. <laughs> so you put your hand down and you drew around your fingers or whatever else, and you put some feathers on it. And so I looked to my left, and Susie... Her turkey looks like a turkey. So I look at hers, and then I look back at mine. Mine looks like a baked potato with feathers. I look at hers. I look back at mine, and I make a decision that I don't remember. And, and, and it, it's, it's, not that, it's not that concrete or maybe not even in language. Yeah. I made a decision that I could not draw. Mm -hmm. So from the age of eight until my current age, with that mindset, how much drawing have I done? Right. Well, that seems to generalize across about any skill set. And I'm not saying that some person, some people don't come on the planet with an inordinate amount of uh, math skills. Right. That, that you, cannot, you cannot look to the environment. Right. Or the, you know, the, the, uh, the saying you know, that if you want to be an Olympic athlete, Choose your parents carefully. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not denying the, the genetic uh, component uh, of anything. Yeah. But I am adamant in that we sell ourselves way short through insecurity, uh, fear of failure, uh, all of those different things, and that can happen way way early. Yeah. I think if we went in, I think if you and I probably went into a good kindergarten at this point. I could, we could do the same experiment that we used to do with second graders because there has mm -hmm. been a push mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. The who's good at math, who's good at art. Yeah. 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 So, so there's been a push at early academics, which I think clearly is a mistake. If the child is ready for it, if the child's asking to do some different things, no problem. But if the child is not developmentally ready, you know, to do uh, uh, reading or math or whatever else, I believe at an emotional level, that's where self-doubt, uh, I believe that's the, the, the genesis of self-doubt. Yeah. Okay, smart guy, put a metric to that. Well, I, I, I can't except mm. in observations, and then at, at some level, you know, the child is able, is able to articulate th those feelings. Right, right. Okay, um, so I've got one more question for you on this topic, and then I want to shift gears yeah. to Southeast Asia. Yeah. Okay. So this question, it, back to the personalization. When you're talking about personalization, um, what I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going down this path, was that in that word personalization is the word person, right? That there has to be some element of human qualitative engagement 
to help that student or help that human being um, understand self and then set a course for what personalization would look like. So rather than just give them the tool and say, the machine's going to tell you what to do and how to do it, can you talk about that a little bit? I believe what you just said is more articulate than the way I explained it. Because what what you said is 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 so to where that it's that interaction or that dynamic between you know the the child or the person and their environment that mm-hmm. that that's where personalizing comes from yeah and and you you explained it uh, perfectly so there 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 needs to be a an element engagement. of an it's, engagement it, it, an engagement it, it, it is. It, it, it is that's a that's an incredibly hot topic uh, in in, uh, in the business world mm. and in the the field of uh, education fairly fairly quickly there's an acronym that uh, Seligman uses mm. that uh, is an extension of his learned helplessness right. uh, that comes out of his it's kind of a synthesis of his entire 40 years of research whatever else from the, the book uh, called Flourish. Mm-hmm. And he uses a, the uh, acronym uh, uh, PERMA. PERMA, right, yeah. And I have added culture to that, hmm. PERMA culture. Yeah. Because I think you grow uh, a skill or ability or intelligence or creativity in a child no differently mm-hmm. than, well, but the same metaphor as the, uh, uh, the, the growth of a, of a plant. Hmm. You know, if, if a plant isn't uh, growing, uh, you don't blame the plant. You uh, look at the soil, you look at the moisture, you look at the fertilizer, yeah. uh, whatever else. And his second part, you know, the, the P is uh, positive emotions. Mm-hmm. But the second one is engagement. And that's pretty much you, how, you, how you described engagement is, is pretty much uh, uh, spot on. Mm. That, that you we, we look at how it is the, the in person basically engages with their world and then R is relationship and that's relationship between people but also the ability to establish or understand relationships between things and then meaning you know that that that, that is a quest rather than a location mm-hmm. and that doesn't it, as far as the biology of, of humans, it doesn't really appear to make any difference if you find it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think that's basically, uh, you know, what uh, man's search for meaning yeah. and, and a lot of the humanist psychologists, I, you know, the, they got turned into bumper stickers and, and uh, buzz, you know, trivialized by saying, you know, it's, it's the quest or it's the, it's the journey rather than the destination yeah. or, or, yeah. or I, I stated that wrongly, but that, that whole notion. And then the last of the, of it is I, I very much like uh, the A in PERMA is accomplishment. And I very much like uh, the, the, the concept or, or the term accomplishment rather than achievement. Mm. Why? Because, it, first of all, it's it is it is it is more personal. So we, we can say uh, Sam is is an accomplished uh, uh, podcaster. Mm-hmm. So it, it speaks more. It's not it's not uh, Sam has achieved stardom through whatever else. And that's kind mm-hmm. of when you think of achievement, you think of 
more of that, either a high uh, test scores or high SAT or, or whatever else. And accomplishment is just a, it's a rounder, softer word for me. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's able to, uh, it, it, in, in my mind, it, it just speaks a little bit more to the person. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, okay. So let's, uh, let's shift gears a little okay. bit. Um, <coughs> so I, I'm not sure the entry point on this story. Uh, I'll, you can decide where you want to where you want to start on the entry point. Um, but I'd love for you to talk about just the work that, that you did in Southeast Asia, in particular in Vietnam. Well, it, it, this, this is, this is and, and it, you know, I've told you the story. And my, my middle daughter, uh, when, uh, when she was in uh, junior high, she had to write, this may be 15, 16 years ago. I, I'm, I'm doing the math in my head. A while ago, she was young, and she had to write a paper on Vietnam, and she knew that I had been there as a soldier. So uh, the uh, she asked, she asked, and, and I said, you know, if you if you really want to do something interesting, I said I have a friend, a Vietnamese American friend, a uh, little, little younger than I am, named Lale Hayslip, and she had written a book called uh, uh, Heaven and Earth which Oliver Stone uh, later made into a, a movie. The movie was pretty terrible, but the book was, I, I felt was pretty good and had a, had a profound effect on, uh, on me. So, but it's fairly graphic, but it's, it's about, it's the, only, it's the only good book that I'm aware of uh, about that particular war from a female peasant's perspective. Hmm. And that's why I made the differentiation that a lot of this is about a war, but it's not a war story. Yeah. And I felt uh, after reading the book for, for myself was that it, uh, it, 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 was, it touched on some universals about what, what uh, aggression and hate and harm does to the larger whole. And I, I felt like... Uh, Lale, I thought the, the, she did a good job in that she literally talked about her childhood and her parents and uh, that one of her brothers uh, became uh, a Viet Cong, which fought for the North. One of her brothers uh, fought for the South. It was just a, a good uh, view of everybody loses. Hmm. So uh, some of it is fairly graphic. So I read it with my daughter and then... Uh, uh, my friend Lale was kind enough to correspond with with my daughter uh, via email, and so my daughter, in uh, as a, a, in you know her early years as a you know childhood into adolescence, just kind of stated matter of fact matter of factly that she wanted to go to Vietnam to help children, and literally. I'm thinking on the inside of my head an expletive that I I won't use. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking. Okay, now what have I done? Yeah. So I told her I said, why don't you let me go back first? And uh, so my friend Lada Hayslip, she gave me some contacts in Vietnam. And uh, so I I had never I had never thought about going back. And. Uh, uh, I had had some struggles and later was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so I had never really thought about 
uh, about that piece or, or going back. So I literally, I, I, uh, I booked a, uh, uh, a hotel uh, in, in, in Saigon, a good, a nice hotel. And so I thought, I'll, I'll go by myself. Uh, if I freak out, I'll uh, uh, swim in the pool and exercise and come home. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the, uh, the trip ended up being transformational in many regards. Some of it I still haven't sorted out completely. But uh, Lale also arranged for some of her friends in Vietnam to, uh, to uh, meet me at the hotel. And they took me around and took me to dinner. And we did, you know, the traditional uh, sightseeing things. But then these uh, folks were educators. And uh, I come back home and they email me and said that they've been uh, hired to uh, start an international school and asked if I'd be interested in consulting. And so uh, I, I went back in pretty short order. I said yes, and went back in pretty short order. And uh, I had never I had never done such a thing. And uh, by this time I'm in I'm in my 40s, so you know I, I uh, 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 go and uh, began to work with the it's it's a Vietnamese couple that are that are funding the school. And literally did the whole thing from kind of the ground up. But again, my uh, interest by this time had kind of changed to more of the strength-based stuff or whatever else. And every time I would come, I literally brought the uh, textbooks, mm -hmm. you know, and had to bring those through customs. And this was like the early 2000s, and that was still not all that cool. You know, <laughs> they'd look at the books and... These are Western textbooks and whatever else. And, and so we'd get them through. And we, we got the school up and running. But I said that I was at a point in my love, life where I was not so much interested in the physical uh, building of schools. I, we did that with uh, the one school in Cambodia, with a school in Cambodia. And I was more interested in the professional development of the teachers. <clears throat> and I'm not going to name the school because it's still it's still up and it's still up and running and has gone great guns. So yeah. so uh, I would come uh, with the intent to uh, to train uh, the teachers in uh, what I considered best practices in reading and math, uh, positive psychology, strength based whereas And it, it, it became apparent to me that they were not interested in uh, best practices or progressive education uh, or, or, or any of those sorts of things. They were more interested in uh, the marketing of mm -hmm. uh, their school to the emerging uh, middle and upper classes. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the international schools, even now, I mean, they're, they're quite expensive in, in Vietnam. So I, I stayed on but I tried to do more observations about, you know, that. And I thought, so they're, they're actually uh, uh, recruiting to, uh, to families that uh, this would be first generation out of abject poverty and war. And so uh, I, as I began to talk to, I became pretty good friends with the director. And I said, well, this, it seems like you guys are just 
encouraging the uh, the haves. And I said, what, where, I'm kind of interested in the have-nots or, or how is it that we could maybe come up with a hybrid? And she says, oh, we've got the have-nots. And I said, uh, tell me more. She says, oh, she's, so she, she gave me a couple specific examples. And at this time, the school is small enough to where I know all the kids individually yeah. Yeah. and had taken them on some field trips and whatever else. And she, so she points out this boy and she said, that boy's uh, father is a policeman, and I can't remember, I think the mother, maybe the mother did not work outside the home, but just worked in the home. And uh, she said that, that the tuition is uh, uh, generated from the mother, the father, the aunt, the uncle, the grandma, the grandpa, you know, the, the, the neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> or whatever else, they, they're all investing in this boy, yeah. and I use the term boy because male, mm -hmm. and, and then literally it's education as an investment mm -hmm. and that he would be able to help you know, the family or whatever else. That flipped a switch that mm -hmm. I was just, due to my own privilege, I just, I wasn't really aware of that side. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I began to explore that a little, a little more uh, uh, carefully, and then it became more apparent to me that that if if we're just looking at traditional teaching and learning methods, uh, <clears throat> what I've said in the United States is a lot of our traditional schooling is preparing for uh, pre preparing children for a world that no longer exists. Mm. So I thought I I don't want to be a part of transferring that to. Uh, a, 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 a different country or culture or whatever right, else. Right. Because they had also asked me, and this was, this was good money, Sam, when I needed good money. <laughs> I was trying to look at how I was gonna get kids through college and uh, still eat and whatever else. So, so I, it, it's, it's not like I turned away any of the uh, consulting fees or whatever else. But I, I began to, to, to uh, really question what it is that I, I thought I could make as a contribution a little longer term. Mm. Because they also wanted me to begin to teach uh, teachers uh, special education strategies. Mm. Well, again, as far as my, my, my professional background, as far as my graduate school and teaching experience and whatever else is fully immersed in the deficit model. So do I not, I'm not inflating or, or conflating my impact, but I thought as far as my impact on that little uh, piece of the world, whatever else, is, is, that, is that my intent? Right. And uh, I decided no. So there was a young woman uh, that had been brought in from, uh, uh, she's actually Vietnamese American. And uh, uh, she, we, she was brought in as a uh, assistant director to the, whole, to the whole school. And just one of those, kind of like you, somebody I just wanna, I just, I just wanna follow their career. Where it just, they've got it. I don't know how to objectify it, but good people, 
smart as, smart as uh, uh, Dickens or whatever else. And so she and I began to have more conversations. And uh, uh, we left the school at about the same time. And uh, so I told her, I said, I, I would like to come back regularly, regularly, mm. but not have a clearly defined purpose. And again, this is the same time, uh, well, the daughter that you know, mm -hmm. uh, Jordan, mm -hmm. uh, I brought her to, to Vietnam. She was like a junior at the University of Washington. Yeah. So I was not done yeah, with yeah, my yeah. Uh, material yeah. quest or whatever else. Yeah. But that was, about the, the, it was about, the same, about the same time that I thought, I'm just going to launch. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. step out of my comfort zone, yeah. step out of whatever else, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, just kind of let, w without going way metaphysical, kind of let the universe uh, <laughs> slap me around. And I did, and I am. <laughs> So I started going back, and I, the, the last you know, 15, 16 years, when I go back, I stay in the same hotel, mm -hmm. in the same neighborhood, uh, and, and, uh, with, with the intent to observe and to, you know, uh, uh, to part participant observation, which you know, Brene Brown, I don't mm -hmm. know if you know her yeah, work, yeah. but that's what she did her PhD in, yeah. is uh, more of that. That, that type of uh, research. And it has, I, it has not made my life easier, but it sure has made, uh, it made it a lot more fun and a lot more satisfying. Yeah. Because then I would go back and uh, I had kind of a routine. I would walk the neighborhood. So year by year, I would watch, you know, the changes and whatever else, and, and literally uh, made friends, you know, with street vendors and whatever else. Mm. Started getting invited to weddings. Hmm. Started getting invited to, you know, like social gatherings and whatever else. And it was probably the first time <clears throat> in my life, Sam, where I was immersed in my being the minority, mm. my not knowing the language, my not knowing the culture, my not understanding uh, the, the whatever else. Now, again, now I, I, I'm still immersed in my privilege and as, as, in, in as profound a way as they uh, w would speak English uh, because they didn't want to hear my tortured Vietnamese. So it was a survival strategy. So it's not, it's not like a clear, it's not like a clear personal uh, or, or uh, not, not a clear uh, split like I was one of them yeah. or, or whatever else. Yeah. But it did have a, a profound impact on the way I've conducted my personal life and my professional life, right to this very day, yeah. where where I, I I think it added to my humility quotient, and also then I, I began to have an inkling of some of these systems pieces. Like I mentioned, I don't know if I've mentioned in uh, before this. I might have been before, but mm -hmm. but looking at some of the Confucian underpinnings mm. of the culture. Uh, there and, and some of the Western uh, culture here, mm -hmm. and then the whole notion of, like I mentioned about your children mm -hmm. uh, growing up uh, as global citizens, mm -hmm. 
that it seemed like, well, certainly I can objectify this. The Vietnamese children at all ages and stages knew way more about the United States, our form of government, our form of business, our form of finance, our form of education, than we have any understanding of theirs, right. uh, which is embarrassing, but also, I think, a, a critical error that, that future generations of children are going to pay for. Mm. Because a, a simple example, and this, I don't know how many years ago this was, but we were working out in uh, a rural area in Vietnam, and we were observing some schools, and there was this young, this young uh, woman, I'm going to say maybe, th I'm going to say 13, 14, 15, mm. so, uh, high school age. Mm. And she was assigned to, uh, to, uh, to uh, help the ignorant American negotiate language and whatever else. And, and so I had broken my watch band. And so I was telling her, I said, you know, I said, I just, I, I just, I, I, I don't feel like I've got all, I'm, I'm fully dressed without my watch. I just mm -hmm. get dependent on it. And, and so in perfectly clear English, she says, uh, I don't, uh, uh, I don't uh, wear or rely on, on uh, uh, technology that has a single function. Perfect English. So literally, my head, I literally stopped in our tracks and, and whipped my head around and, and I said, where, 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 do you, where, where do you hear, uh, where do you hear language like that and, and whatever else? And she says, uh, TED Talks. Hmm. Well, Sam, at this point, I, have, I don't know TED Talks. <laughs> so I have to go to an impoverished area in rural <laughs> yeah. Vietnam to learn from a 13, 14, 15-year-old about TED Talks. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I'm thinking, so then they changed the nature of our conversation mm -hmm. where I began exploring more about uh, her knowledge, which was extraordinary, and her interests, her future. And I, so I asked her, I said, I said, have you spent time in America or where, where, what school did you go to or what learning center did you go to? Uh, for to, to learn the English with it. So, oh no no, that's a watching American television, right. a watching you know things that she uh, yeah, YouTube or or, right. or whatever else. Right. So I thought, here I am coming again as an educational and as a learning expert, and the world has changed, unbeknownst to me. Right. Yeah. And I can't tell you how excited much that excites me yeah because then that sets my path as much about what i need to unlearn or what i need mm. to re-examine that way i was trained the way i was brought up or whatever else that is no longer true or that never was true yeah that's insightful that's really insightful i mean so so maybe just as we move toward the close yeah if if you can I think that's very insightful. I think that's insightful for all of us, right? So how, how along your journey, um, how do you find that, how do you force yourself to reconcile or have that opportunity or that platform or that open mindset to ask that question of yourself that may have um, a scary answer or it's just kind of pushing yourself into the unknown 
Um, is there a, a, a philosophy that you have? Is there a, a, the seven years that you have? Or just how do you come to that conclusion? I, I'd, I'd say two, two things. First of all, the, the, a lot of the, the, the work I did in Vietnam, that sent me back here to get some good therapy. Mm. Some good traditional yeah. therapy yeah. through the, the Veterans Administration, uh, through their psychiatry department, and yeah. through uh, uh, traditional, uh, fairly traditional, and some progressive uh, psychologists right, right here in, in Seattle. Mm -hmm. and that uh, where I stepped out of, I, I didn't want to be the psychologist, yeah. or, or I didn't want to. I didn't want to play that. I didn't want to play that game. Yeah. Yeah. And by that time, I had my ego enough in check to where I, I was able to do that. So these are young professionals that are, uh, well, smarter than I ever thought about being. And that are, they're, making, they're making the transitions in their own professional life, their own personal life, and their own families. I found that, I found that to be uh, 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 particularly helpful. And then... I'd say I'd balance that out with the, uh, the work of the Zen Buddhist uh, monk uh, Thich Than Hanh, who is a Vietnamese uh, uh, monk, still alive, mm -hmm. I think in his early 90s. He's actually just now gone back to Vietnam. He said he, that's where he wants to transition, mm -hmm. that's where he wants to die. But his, his written work has had a, a very profound impact uh, on me as far as kind of insight meditations, or more of the Zen uh, approaches, or whatever else, but his his writing is very elegant, uh, rather than simple, because mm -hmm. it's 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 not. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, he writes uh, in uh, poems, he writes poetically, or whatever else. And if you equate that to the brain, and back to Gardner's multiple intelligences, it's it's the left linear logical sequential. Western psychiatry, and then the Eastern underpinnings, which is much more uh, introspective, much more uh, mindful, or whatever else. Mm. And then I tried to, I, I, as I sit here right now, that's my interest, is how, how is it that you marry the two of those? Yeah. Then that takes me to the, the positive psychology with the, uh, the values and action. Mm -hmm. which is an outgrowth of the work of Seligman mm -hmm. or Seligman's colleague uh, Chris Peterson did, mm -hmm. where he's looked at the last 5,000 years of philosophies and uh, 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 traditional techniques, both East and West, and came up with these 24 values that I've, I've talked to you about. Right. Well, then there's a young man in Ohio that is looking at that, and he is also was was and is influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh. Hmm. Now he's much younger than I, but there is an organization there that is looking at the values in action. Uh, where I mean, it's an up and running organization. It's right. a not for profit, right. yeah. but they're they're out there, and they're looking at marrying the uh, the uh, the mindfulness uh, uh, techniques and strategies and philosophies and underpinnings with uh, the virtues and values that appear to transcend location. Mm, yeah. And that's yeah. the evolutionary piece yeah. to where those things have been around for, for eons. Yeah. 
but just to to say that that you now as we sit here we now have access to those types of uh, uh, resources any place on the planet yeah but it never it never it's like you could uh, you could mindfully be a criminal mm -hmm. you know and without the virtues and the values you know to, to uh, to root root either side, uh, it seems to be a, a again. It seems to be, if not a deficiency model, it, it, or not a deficit model, it's a deficiency in the way that we view things. Right. right. And I'd say, as I wander around, and now that that uh, uh, I I still I still mentor and I still tutor. I call myself a learning advisor now, hmm. rather than a psychologist. But what, what I always start out with, with whoever I'm working with, I said, now these are, these, are, these are things that I try to practice. So in some regards, I don't want to limit you to my understanding or my learning. But we'll put, we'll put some, the, the Japanese term of uh, loose tight. Mm. So we're going to put some tight frameworks around it. Now, within that framework, that's your work. Yeah. That's how we personalize it. Yeah. So then that turns it much more into a conversation, much more of a dance, rather than somebody being sentenced to someone else to fix them. Yeah. And that uh, uh, is much more difficult to, to write up in, in some type of report or whatever mm -hmm. else, but it seems to be bearing fruit. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's practical. But it's it's practical that's rooted or it's practice that's rooted in uh, in research and theory as well. Yeah. So it's not either or; it's both or more. Yeah. Um, so just the last final thought. I'm yeah. just curious about um, maybe in a in a uh, statement or two. Just when you look out into the future, oh. what uh, what in your words, makes you vibrate? What makes you, I, what I, gets you excited? I, I just look, and some of this is, some of these are, uh, it's like an, another thing that I do with, uh, with uh, folks that I'm working with is drawing out the, the zero to 100, yeah. drawing the uh, negative 10, zero, plus 10. And then I put, I put three boxes mm -hmm. on, uh, and then I connect them, mm -hmm. and one being the past, one being the present, and one being the future. Mm -hmm. And this, the, the, this, this is grounded in an old, uh, uh, the Stanford Research Institute, which is, I don't even know if it's still in existence, mm -hmm. but they did a study uh, years ago, years and years and years ago, where they found, they just, uh, they asked people to list, list 10 things that they're currently worried about. And they didn't, they wouldn't define worry for the person. So mm -hmm. what, whatever worry means to you. And they put down 10 because most people wouldn't come up with 10, but they wanted people to stretch. Yeah. And then they just looked at those worries and then they put them into these different boxes. And they found out that, that the vast majority of the things that the person was worried about is rooted in the past. Mm -hmm. And then the next box that is most filled was things that they're worried about in the future. Right. And you know the end of the story. They ain't doing nothing in the present for that, what they did or, or what they're going to do. So then that kind of, 
you know, that kind of roots the mindfulness yeah. uh, approach to where, okay, okay, so we're sitting here in this breath, and then, uh, and then w what, uh, w what I've gotten, uh, what I strongly encourage is the, the J-O-T, is the just one thing. So as we're talking about, you know, our pasts and our presence and our future, you know, uh, especially young people, they can kind of, they can kind of all of a sudden, they're, they're going to lose 50 pounds uh, uh, this afternoon. <laughs> and and, and, or they, and you, you just, you can kind of get overwhelmed. And it's at any age or any stage, you know, with the complexities of, of the life uh, that we live, you know, it, it, uh, you, you, can, you can list out too many things. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is to encourage people to, is, is to simplify it and then prioritize. Right. And, and, then, and then list a few things. Well, then I, what I've been trying to do is to then go to the folks that I respect in the field of education, uh, the field of business, and the field uh, of government. That are that are beginning to look uh, more uh, more of a future focus. One of Bill Gates's quotes from probably the early 2000s that uh, I, I liked when he was talking about technology. This is before the Gates Family Foundation started. Mm -hmm. But he, they, somebody asked him about the future, and he said, "Don't expect too much in the next three years, and don't expect too little in the next five. Hmm. And I've kind of taken that to heart, to where when I look at uh, the, the learning platforms uh, that I see and whatever else, we're, we're, just, we're just scratching the surface. And we need to forgive ourselves for that. So, but I think we can, I think we can begin to look out as far as uh, the innovations in education and learning. I think we can at least look out five years. So I try to do a stretch goal of looking out 10 years. So if I'm working with an individual, I want them to be able to image out. If you're 10, we want to image out to about 20. Hmm. So that, so we're going to kind of explore uh, 10 years old to zero for the person, and then 10 to about 20. Hmm. Well, then, then the uh, the experts and some of some of well, a lot of it's local. I mean, some of the works that the Gates folks are doing and. I'm pretty good friends with the person who's the uh, the K-12 uh, uh, education grants coordinator, mm -hmm. and so she and I uh, talk a fair amount. <clears throat> the person that's that heads up the uh, the Gates folks, I'm actually where I'm doing a lunch with her. Uh, I think next week, mm -hmm. and then there's a guy down in uh, Fedway named Tom Vander Ark, mm -hmm. and he has a uh, organization called Getting Smart. And I, I follow mostly his, uh, his uh, I think he does podcasts, but I, I follow up mostly his uh, via email. You know, his, he's a good writer. Yeah. He was a superintendent down a federal way, a good one. And uh, I don't believe he had an education background. Mm. I think he had a business background. Mm. And that was kind of poo-pooed at the time. Well, then he came on, however many years ago, he was the first executive of the educational uh, orientation of the Gates Foundation. Hmm. And I don't know how many years he did that, Sam, but a number of years. And then he split off in, as his own organization. And his specific interest is the future of work. Right. Yeah. So he's kind of doing backward design. <laughs> yeah. So looking at the future of work, 
what kinds of skills and, and skill yeah. sets are, are young people going to uh, going to, to need? Yeah. And then uh, I have, you know, you know STEM, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, uh, yeah. you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I've and this is not me, but mm -hmm. I've changed that to STEAM. Yeah. So you you, yeah. you throw yeah. in the A. Yeah. So as far as what I see in the future is, it's the holistic approaches in education are no longer for the granola heads hmm. or, or the progressives uh, or, or whatever else of my era. It's looking at the best of the sciences and the best of the arts and saying, there's still a, there's still a, a, a place for like a liberal arts degree hmm. as far as uh, you know, uh, the future of learning. But there's not a future for uh, uh, creating the amount of debt that most or that a lot of young people, especially the have-nots, in getting that liberal arts degree. Yeah. So Vander Ark and others are saying, what we want to do is to encourage our youth get a job, and then do the zero to hundred trick. Yeah. You're doing lifelong learning. So if you learn a specific skill set that allows you to keep the wolf from the door, that does not. It it, it doesn't. You, you don't have to love it. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to like it, mm -hmm. but you can learn from it. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's if that's uh, helping with uh, recycling or if that's helping with, uh, you know, picking up uh, uh, garbage or whatever else, that is a that is a good entree into uh, the future of what's needed to be done, because you begin to ask the question, you know, what's what's the world asking for? Right. But then you can backfill your liberal arts degree that you're sustaining yourself without an inordinate amount of debt, you can backfill your, your, uh, your uh, uh, what, whatever, you can backfill or forward fill. Yeah. Once you've got the, the open mindset, right. tweaks work. Right. You've got the, uh, some, some of the understanding of the grit work mm -hmm. of Duckworth mm -hmm. and Penn mm -hmm. and some of the other things. And we look at this developmentally and lifelong that seems to be the core of what's necessary yeah. because it's flexibility in our ability and willingness to learn that seems to be the, uh, the exciting piece. Yeah. So yes, you are training for a specific life in finance, but then you know the literature better than I, you know that we have to help young people to understand that you may not just go from one financial institution to another, you may have six or seven distinct careers mm -hmm. well then back that into some of the amazing platforms that are coming and some of the I mean literally from podcasts which I know little or nothing about mm -hmm. uh, to some of the uh, uh, AI enhanced and some of the virtual reality uh, learning environments and whatever else and like I said at some point in this conversation that's in time for your children right yeah so the part that's not going to be replaced, my hunch, by AI, is is the uh, this personalizing piece, yeah. and the the willingness for the individual to be able to examine their emotional life, their social life, and their cognitive life. Well, the science in those three areas is is again it's exponentially better than when I was in my career, yeah. back when I thought I knew something. <laughs> yeah. Which again, this sounds a little zen. Once I let go of that, I found that my learning improved substantially. Yeah. 
I love it, Gary. I well, mean, that's a, that's a perfect, perfect uh, cap. So thank you well, for sharing uh, your story and your wisdom. And uh, This seems similar to our other conversations where I just went into a flow state. I love it. So though, if, yeah. if any of it makes any sense. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. Now it's going to make sense to the world. <laughs> um, but thank you.